Our scripture this morning comes in a new place for us. Uh, we're beginning uh, eight weeks together in the little Old Testament book of, of Daniel. And let me read chapter one, beginning with verse one. Daniel writes, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent, to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, I can tell you, it's one of the worst feelings in the world. I I feel it when I'm like sitting in in traffic, uh, unable to exit and not sure where I'd go even if I could, right? Or I feel it when, when I realize once again that I have all of this an immense responsibility to raise my kids well, uh, but at the end of the day, they're their own little humans and they're going to make their own choices, right? And David is already, he's already halfway to 19. Or I, I, feel, it, I feel it when I look around the, the world or I turn on the news, right? And you, you, you see it all, all around us. Or, or I, I feel it when I remember um, that next month I get to vote. And I will vote but I just threw up a little bit in my mouth, actually. <laughs> I feel out of control. And, and I, I, feel, I feel like I'm stuck in a world that is completely out of control. And I want to I chase it. I want to run it down. I want to grab onto it. And the moment that I think I have it, there it goes, right? And, and you, you know what I, what I mean, right? I, I, I'm convinced one of, the, one of the most common feelings of the human experience And one of the things that we hate the most is feeling like life is out of our control. So brace yourself for what I have for us today. Um, You're not going to like it. I don't. I don't like it. I'm still a little bit ticked about it, um, quite honestly. But it's it's what we it's what we see right here, and so that's what we're going to do. So like it or not, here's what we're going to learn this morning is that you and I were never meant to have control. You and I were never meant to have control. I mean, we want it, we love it, we fight for it, we'll do anything to have it. I mean, it's even, it's like, it's why Adam and Eve took that first bite in the first place, right? It wasn't, it wasn't because they were tempted by a piece of fruit, right? I mean, have you ever been tempted by fruit? No, like they, they, they were hungry for control. They wanted to take control. You, somebody got it, yeah. <laughs> They wanted control. And their offspring, us, 
but we have been fighting for it ever since. And we, when we come to this, this little tiny book in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, written most likely by Daniel after 70 long years in Babylon, and all that he saw, all that he experienced, Daniel is written for a people who have never felt more out of control, who have never felt more abandoned or, or powerless or just completely, completely rejected. I mean, you think we feel out of control? They, they had just seen their entire lives, all of the world, now going through cataclysmic upheaval. When you turn to Daniel chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, we're here for eight weeks, so you might as well just figure out where it is. It's just past the middle. Um, maybe, maybe look in the table of contents or just find it on your phone. Uh, but I, I, read, I read the first few verses for us. Let me read the first verse for us again, just so we understand the context of what Daniel is walking into. He begins his story by saying, in the third year, of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And essentially, he, he takes over. Now, now, you may not understand like, what, what just happened there, or the context, but like, you probably have a hunch at this point that it's not great, right? Like something terrible has just happened to, to God's people. It's in the third year of King Jehoiakim, so that's 605 BC for you history buffs, it's about 600 years, right, prior to the time of Christ. We're talking a really, really, really long time ago. And for God's people there, living, living in Judah, everything is changing for them, and it's not, it's not good. In fact, it's, it, I don't know if it could be worse. So like this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, but, but Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most powerful men of the, of the entire known world, leader of the most powerful empire of that day, Babylon. Okay, and you can see the journey, right, from Jerusalem all, all the way to Babylon, uh, the immensity that it was, the, the, the way that they, they took over the world. And Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, you can read about him in, in both uh, biblical and you know, non-biblical historical documents. Like he was kind of a big deal in that time period and Babylon, Babylon as well. It's a big deal, but he's also kind of a colossal jerk, right? He's a brutal dictator, and he's bent on taking over the entire known world, making it his, building a nation for his, for his glory. And 605 BC, that's where our story begins, that's the first of three attacks that Babylon would execute upon Jerusalem. It would culminate in 586 with the destruction of God's temple in Jerusalem, and the utter collapse of Judah as a nation. But here we are in 605. This, this first attack is really more of a show of power uh, than a hostile takeover. But nevertheless, like Nebuchadnezzar ransacks God's temple, takes, takes the stuff back, back to Babylon, and commands that the, the who's who of, of Jewish society, like of that, of that culture, that world, be taken along with them back as, as captives, as, as slaves. So it's not great, right? In fact, it's pretty awful. And while you, you might be thinking, because it's what they were thinking at the time, like why, why would God possibly let this happen to his people? I mean, like what, what's his deal? Like how, how, could, this, how could this happen? And, and while, while that's a normal question for us to ask, it shouldn't have surprised anyone. In fact, God told them this was going to happen. Like way back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 28, God makes it, makes it really, really clear that if, I mean, basically says, if you reject me, I'm not going to protect you. Like if you, if you try to take control out of my hands or you try to control me, 
I will show you how little control you actually have. And it's not that, it's not that power is a bad thing, right? We all, we all have power to, to some degree, but our assumption that we control our reality, like our, our, our deep-seated belief that I'm in charge of my own happiness and safety, it's deeply insulting to our creator. Sort of like when, you know, maybe, maybe you've had this moment as a parent or, yeah, maybe your kids are just perfect. Um, but like those moments, whether, whether they're this size or this size, they just look at you like, I'm going to do this on my own. I don't need you. Like I do it sort of thing, right? And it happens at all, at all different stages. And, and, and you, you feel that as a parent, like, well, actually you, you do need help. I do need to speak into your life. And, and so you almost, you kind of like, you sort of like, all right, we'll see how it goes, right? Because you, you want like just a tiny bit of failure in their lives so they know that they they aren't independent, that they aren't autonomous, that they actually need help, right? You, I mean, you follow that, right? And that's, that's sort of what happened. So for centuries, God has been so patient with his people, slow to anger, but it kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and the rejection of God only grew. In fact, it got to a point about 100 years before Daniel Really ugly moment. Honestly, if you, if you know the Old Testament, it's, it's pretty ugly throughout when it comes to, to God's people. Um, we're, we're, not, we're not great. Um, but a hundred years before this, you see this sort of begin to culminate with, a, with a, actually a really good king. His name was Hezekiah. Um, he was one of the best kings in Judah. I mean, he, he, he experienced God in ways that you and I can only dream. Like he was healed by God. He was protected by God. Like he and God were, they were pretty tight. Um, but you see what, what happened was there was another, another ruling power in that time period, uh, the Assyrians. It wasn't the Babylonians yet. It was the Assyrians. The Assyrians were, were just as bad, if not worse, brutal, brutal people. And, and Hezekiah is understandably terrified of them. And, and God says to Hezekiah, I am in control of the situation. Will you trust me? And he- Hezekiah is like, yeah, sure, God. I'll, I'll trust you. And, the, and then he runs off and he tries to form an alliance with Babylon to protect him with, with Babylon. Like, are you picking up on the irony there? And so what actually happens is like this, this group from Babylon, they're not enemies yet, they show up in Jerusalem. Hezekiah, he welcomes them in and he opens up all the treasuries, lets them in the temple, lets them see all the, the wonders and the splendors that, that he had, which, by the way, if you're listening, have just been hauled off to Babylon, right? And what he's doing there is saying, hey, I got the money, you got the soldiers, we both hate Assyria, Babylon, will you keep me safe? Will you protect me? And I mean, before we, before we throw Hezekiah under the bus here, I mean, the Assyrians were pretty bad. I mean, they, they continue to like shock historians with their brutality, the ways in which they would torture and execute their victims. I mean, is without compare in the ancient world. And it's, they're just to the north of them. So it'd be sort of like, you know, ISIS taking over Iowa and God telling us not to worry about it, right? Make you a little uncomfortable, wouldn't it? So that's, that's the situation that Hezekiah is in. And, and yet, instead of trusting God, he trusts Babylon. And the irony is just, is just huge here. And even, I mean, again, just like let this sink in for a second. Because like Hezekiah, he's one of the best. He's a righteous man, a good king. And yet his downfall is that he trusts politics to save him. 
and God destroys them for it. Just saying. And so God says to Hezekiah, he says to Hezekiah, it's in in Isaiah um, that he says this. God says, behold, Hezekiah, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. It sounds a lot like Daniel chapter one, doesn't it? But not, not quite yet. God's people just have a little, bit, a little bit more left before this happens. So Hezekiah, he's not perfect, but he's one of, the, one of the best kings in Judah. His son, Manasseh, is one of the absolute worst. I mean, just when things could not look worse for God's people, Manasseh takes over. And Manasseh, I mean, not only does he worship these false gods, like he's a murderer of his own people. He sacrifices his own sons on the altars to these pagan deities, attempting to control the gods, right? Attempting to be in charge. And so it happens, just like God said it would. See, lesson number one from this story, God doesn't like it when we assume control. He doesn't like it when we try to take over. We, you and I, we were never meant to have control. It is the essence of sin. It's, it's what Adam and Eve did. It's, it's what Hezekiah and Manasseh did in very different ways, and yet still the, the same goal to, to carve out their own way, right? To make their own, to be safe and happy apart from God. And honestly, it's what I do. When what God wants most from us is trust, dependence, That doesn't mean that we have to be inactive, right, or or passivity. Of course not. But our obsession with control, God says, it's got to go. Like, what are are those areas for you? You know, where you you do just a little bit more, just about anything, but just a little bit more control or a little bit more say or or a little bit better sense of, of authority. Like, where are the places in your life that you're at risk of robbing God of authority? big ways, small ways, and everything in between. What does that look like for you? It is the essence of sin. And it's, I mean, we see it, right? It's just not worth it. Just look at the mess that God's people are in. The temple has been ransacked. Like all, all of, the, all of the, the beautiful artifacts from the temple are now taken out into Babylon and to all these other places of, of pagan worship. I mean, this was a, a clear way in ancient culture to say our gods can beat up your God. Is what, is, what that, is what that means. Pushing, pushing Israel's God, Yahweh, aside and saying, no, we, we are in charge. You, he can't protect you anymore, is what, is what they're saying. And then in verse 3, it continues to escalate. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And so enter, enter Daniel and his friends. What, what's being said there is that, I mean, Daniel and his friends, they're like, they're like the cream of the crop, Right? Uh, the best of culture and, and nobility, smart and capable and, and good-looking. Um, I love that Daniel's probably writing this like later on. He's like, yeah, I mean, not so bad, right? Um, and we're talking about 
so he and many others, now captives in Babylon, we're talking about like teenagers and even younger, right? And so students, like this is, this is your story, right? Put yourself in their, in their shoes. Imagine what they've experienced. Their, their cultural identity has been taken away. Their home is gone. Their families are no more. And, and there they are alone and without any sense of control whatsoever. You see, this was a brilliant way to take over a nation, right? They, they were smart back then, right? I mean, you assimilate the who's who, the most powerful people of a nation, and you take away their culture, you take away their identity, and you make them Babylonian, right? Imagine what that would do in a couple of generations. They were also most likely castrated. Kids, you can ask your parents later. Um, We don't know for sure, uh, but it would be pretty unthinkable for a culture of that magnitude and that society not to to do that. I mean, to allow for testosterone, uh, to be in the king's palace, right, with the king's hair and where the king sleeps. Like, it'd be unthinkable. And so you you can almost bet for sure even that was taken away from Daniel and his friends. And then they're taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. I mean, we get a little nervous about, you know, uh, the public schools, right? Can you imagine what this was like for them? It was like the height of, of sort of demonic worship and occultic histories and, and all these ancient things that they, they would have brought. I mean, propaganda and brainwashing to the highest degree. For three years, they're indoctrinated, force-fed the evils of Babylon and of all their demonic worship. And in the midst of all that, four young teens stood out above all the rest. They're mentioned here, but they even took away their names because they were just a little bit too Jewish. So they gave them new names. Instead of names that, that reflected Yahweh, the, the, the Jewish God, our God, the, the, the one God of all the universe, they're given these, these names that reflect the, the pagan deities around them. And so, for example, we have, we have Hananiah. Hananiah, his name meant Yahweh is gracious. But now he's Shadrach, which means enlightened by the sun God. Then you have Mishael, which means who is like God, but now he's Meshach, who is like the God Aku. You have Azariah, which means Yahweh is my help. And now he's Abednego, the helper of the god Nebo. And then there's Daniel, means God is my judge. And he's Belteshazzar, prince of Bel, which was Nebuchadnezzar's favorite little deity, Bel. And so every, every time somebody called their name, a reminder of what they've lost, a, a reminder of, of how bad things are, of, of all of the evils that they, they're not allowed to engage with, with their God. Anymore. They, all of that's been stripped away from them. A constant reminder. And, and let me even just say, like, as a side note, stories like this are one of the reasons that I believe the Bible is true. Um, because, like, other cultures don't talk about themselves like this. Like, if you... If you if you read the ancient uh, documents of the, of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians, they only tell the good stuff, right? It's like the highlights are real. It's, it's heroic and awesome. They're brags is what they are. But only, only in God's book do we see stuff like, they don't talk about, they don't talk about their failures. The Bible specializes in them. At every turn. I mean, if this was merely an Israelite book, it wouldn't tell stories like this one or how they, they got themselves into this mess or a hundred other stories like them. But if it's God's book, if God is outside of history looking down upon us, understanding who we are and the mistakes that we make, he's going to tell it like it is. Even the ugliest, most humiliating parts. 
I mean, just, just compare um, the Bible with the ancient Near Eastern documents. There's nothing like it. And so God's people, they've lost everything. Uh, they've lost their identity. They've, they've had their face, faith forcibly stripped away, and they are, they are out of control. Which brings us to the second thing. A, a reminder that I really need, especially today. And don't miss this from the story. God's people have always lived in a world outside their control. There's nothing new here, not really. God's people have always lived in a world outside their control. But this isn't, this isn't new territory for them. And, and as, you, as you look around our world today, maybe you feel it slipping away. Right? And you, you feel as if the, the sky is falling. It might feel like new territory for us, but it's not new territory for the people of God. Not a chance. We've never been in control, right? Control is an illusion, something that we, we think we can grab onto. And man, I mean, we feel it right now, don't we? I mean, you turn on the news, you watch the debates, you see what's going on, maybe personally in your lives or, or out there and all these things, we, f- we feel it spiraling out. But you know what? What I find really hopeful in the mess in which we find ourselves is that there's a whole group of people in our country who are beginning to realize that, that what they've been building their hope upon isn't going to come through. And we as God's people, the church, we, we can actually step into that gap now and say, but here, here is where real hope is. Here is something that outlasts every other kingdom or nation or political power. Here is something that, that, that changes all of the rest. And we'll see that over and over in Daniel. That we in America who've had it so easy for so long, who have been able to maintain some sense of power, who now see it slipping away, that we are finally coming to realize what, I mean, if you think about it, every other Christian and every other culture and every other time period has known for millennia that this is not our home, that that it can't be, that our our ultimate citizenship, it's not not here, our hope, our our safety, our identity, it's not not tied up in this place, not in the the same way, right? And the Apostle Peter, for example, 600 years after Daniel, Peter, who was was killed in, in a terrible empire, right? Rome, because of his commitment to following Jesus. Peter, Peter wrote to the church and referred to all Christians as exiles. Just like Daniel. That you and I, we're, we're no different than he is. We, we, are, we are in a place in which we don't belong. A place in which we cannot find our home. That we're, nef- we're never at home. Not here. And one thing is, is definitely true. <laughs> while it may be harder to be a Christian now than it was 10 years ago, um, and while I can pretty, pretty much guarantee it's going to be harder in another 10, um, it's not Babylon. And as fun as I think it would be to like make um, t-shirts that say uh, Nebuchadnezzar for president, right? Um, neither candidate is as wicked as he. Not even close, honestly. I mean, I feel like, I feel like if Daniel could overhear us, you know, our, our private conversations, our, our griping, our whining, our fear-mongering, I think Daniel, I think he'd do two things. First, I think he'd kick our whiny little butts. I do, eunuch or not. Um, and then I think he'd like pause and be like, wait, you guys get a vote? Like you, you, you have that, you have say in these things and like you have systems and you're going to go to ch- like church? Like what is that all about? The sky, people, the sky is not falling. 
We may have less comfort and less security and less power than ever before, but we were never meant to have control. And America was never meant to be our home. Don't miss this. In Babylon, God's people survive. Actually, they, they thrive. They, they even flourish in the mess that it is. And I mean, they suffer. Don't get me wrong. It is terrible. And, and nobody would have picked it for themselves, right? It is, it is awful and painful. And we will see that over and over again. This is no cakewalk for Daniel and his friends. And yet still, still Daniel remains faithful to his God, even in Babylon. So how do we do that? Well, this is where we need to get a little bit practical. God doesn't like it when we assume control. We said God, God's people have always lived in a world outside their control. And finally, most importantly, please don't miss this, God doesn't ever lose control. Like the, God, God, our God, he, he's never out of control. Like he never, he never drops the ball. He never exits his throne. And the most important words in these verses, are words that are going to set the, the theme for really the entire book and all of these eight weeks together, words that Daniel himself wrote, and I can only imagine probably that he could only write them in, re- in retrospect, right? Daniel's, Daniel's there for 70 years. Daniel dies in Babylon. And I picture him as an old man looking back, seeing what God has done through him and in him and through his people there in a suffering place in ex- exile. And what does is, what is Daniel write as he starts this story? Not that Nebuchadnezzar did it or Babylon did it or the devil did it. What does he say? Verse two, it says the Lord gave his people into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God did it because God doesn't ever lose control. Your illness, your unemployment, your kids, your disappointments, and we've, we've got plenty of them. The things that we see happening in the world around, of it, around us, none of it just happens and it's not that those are good things, like all of a sudden we're okay with the, thing, the fact that our lives are, are messy or broken. Or, I mean, ter- we live in a broken world and terrible things happen, and they happen to God's people even. And yet, even so, don't think for a moment that God has fallen asleep, that he's, he's abandoned us. We were never meant to have control, but instead to respond to the one who never loses it, who always has it. And ultimately, who promises to use his control for our good, for our flourishing. And if you believe that like Daniel did, I think there's, there's three ways that we can respond or should respond to this, this story. Three things that I'm wrestling with, and we'll, we'll unpack these more as we continue our time in Daniel these next few weeks. But first, first if we were never meant to have it, control, um, then tr- stop trying so hard to get it. Man, we just spin our wheels in the mud, don't we? Whether it's by manipulating our kids, the people around us, by, by attacking the, the, the people that we work with or our neighbors, or, or by just you know, jumping on some bandwagon thinking that this finally is going to be the thing that, that fixes it. Stop fighting the losing battle for control and submit to the one who already has it. And so where are those places in your life? Where do you need to repent? Where do you even maybe need to embrace God's discipline just as he disciplined his people then? Don't think that he wouldn't do that to us out of, out of love and grace. But you know what I think we do instead? Um, I think when we feel power or control slipping away, I think we tend to either grab, grandstand, or give up. Like we grab at it, 
Like we fight on, we'll do anything we can, right, to, to maintain some measure, some illusion of control. And we hurt the people around us and we, we destroy uh, our witness in, in a world like ours. Or, or we grandstand. This is where like, well, I know I don't have power anymore, but everybody who does is just, they're awful. And we look down and we sneer, we mock, and we're, instead of like helping work towards solutions, we're, we're a bigger part of the problem. We're cynical and we accomplish nothing. Or we just give up. I'm guessing that's where many of us feel this morning. But God in control doesn't give us permission to be passive. Don't give up. In fact, that's the second thing that we learn here. Instead, instead of giving up, learn from those without it. If we were never meant to have control, learn with, from those who, who haven't ever had control, who know they don't have control, like Daniel, for example, right? I mean, Daniel, what a remarkable story. Here's this guy who ends up working as an official in one of the most horrible governments the world has ever known. Right? He thrives in politics. Isn't that wild? I mean, I love that about his story. He's faithful in, the, in that context. He doesn't put his head in the sand when, when things around him are, are difficult and painful in his, in his world. But he does it with incredible humility, respect, even actual love for his enemies. He does it with confidence and resolve because he knows that it's God who's put him there. And he can trust him. And we have a lot to learn from Daniel. But we don't have to look that far either. I think we can learn from those without control um, in, in the world around us, right? Or, or those who have never, never had it. I mean, for example, I, th- I think of the African-American church, which has been marginalized for centuries. How, how have they remained faithful in a world that's been out, largely outside of their own control? Or what about what God is doing in other places around the world today? What about Iran? We have, we have partners there as a church. You know, Iran is a place where to convert to Christianity is to, to risk your life. It's to have everything taken away from you. And I, I went to their, their website of our partners this week, and I saw this article. Um, it was just published uh, 10 days ago. Jesus changed lives, changes lives. 214 baptized this week. Knowing that to get in that water is to have your family reject you. To get, to get in that water is to have your property potentially taken away from you, to lose your job, your livelihood, to p- potentially go to prison, even, even lose your own life. And to, to do that anyway, man, we have a lot to learn from people around us, from the Christians around us, the church that is persecuted in so many places around the world today that continues to flourish. I mean, think about what God has done in China. They outlawed Christianity there 50 years ago, and now there's like a billion Christians or something. Something crazy there, not that many, but a lot. Um, look it up, it's not that far off. Um, and here, here's, here's what's so remarkable to me. And I, I need to hear this as much as anybody. Like, nothing, nothing is going to stop the good news of Jesus. Nothing. And if God's people can flourish in Babylon, if they can, if they can flourish um, in Rome and Iran and in China, do you think maybe God has got this? Like that it's, it's going to be okay? Which is the last thing. And I hope it's obvious. So trust God in it. Trust God in it. For example, can you tell me why it is? At least from my perspective, and I know I'm, maybe I'm a little bit jaded here, and so you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure you will. Um, but like why, why is it that it's, it seems that American Christians are the first to freak out when things go wrong. Like, why are we the first to panic? Like, with, with a, a new law or a new agenda or a, a new politician or a new whatever, why, why are we the ones who go, well, that's it. 
That's, that's it. God is, he's dead. He's done. He's given up, right? Like, why, why is it us, we who know the story, we who understand that no matter what, no matter what defeats there are along the way, that, that ultimately the victory is his, that we can have confidence that nations come and go, politicians come and go, laws come and go, but God remains forever, and that we, his people, continue to move forward, that God is not asleep that no matter what we face, either individually or as a people, that we can trust him in it, no matter how scary it becomes. And it is scary. So here's the here's next step. If you're looking for something to do in response to this, and this will come out often in Daniel um, in the weeks ahead. But if you want to respond to this, to this God who's in control, I think one of the easiest ways, uh, most, most important ways, is to pray. Maybe that seems passive, maybe that seems like a cop-out, but let me tell you, if you're not praying, it's because you still think you're in control. And God wants nothing to do with that. Prayer is nothing if not dependence. It's nothing if not admitting before the, the God of the, that I need, that I can't do it on my own. And, and we'll see that in Daniel's life. I mean, so much so, like, we'll see it next week or in the next couple of weeks that he, that he has these rhythms of prayer. But eventually, I mean, that's why he's thrown into the lion's den, you know that, is because he refuses to stop praying because he knows that he can't, he can't do it on his own, that, he, that we were never meant to have control. But we can submit to the one who's always been in control. If that's not part of your regular rhythm, I'd encourage you, maybe this week, just try it. Five minutes, I don't know, set a timer, 10 minutes. I know prayer's weird, it's hard. I, I get it, right? But try it before Facebook, before you go to the news, before email your to-do list. Just stop for a second and tell yourself through prayer, that I, I was never meant to be in control of my life or my circumstances or my kids or my work. But I'm going to trust the one who, who always, always is. I can tell you, I'm really excited to study this book together. I mean, never have I needed it more. I mean, it's, an, it's a book of incredible confidence in the worst, worst of times. But as I said, um, and not to give away the ending, I guess, I don't know, but Daniel dies in Babylon. He dies waiting for this. He doesn't, he doesn't get to see what he longs for. And I can, I mean, don't you just imagine all of his prayer time, surely he cried out to God, like, God, would you just fix this already? Would you set your people free? Would you do what we long for you to do over and over again? But, and Daniel, though, he only got the slightest glimpse of what you and I from this vantage point can see so clearly. As Daniel cried out, God, God, would you just fix it? You and I, we get to hear Jesus Christ say, I, I am and I have Maybe not how we want him to or when we want him to, but, but he is the great answer to all of, these, all of these things that we long for. And let me just ask, like, has the world ever, ever looked more out of control than when God himself hung on a cross? Has, has it ever looked bleaker or, or darker than that moment when Jesus died on the cross for our sins? Has, has Satan ever looked more powerful, the powers of darkness, more victorious than in that moment? But he didn't stay dead. And our God turns the moment of greatest tragedy, of deepest injustice our world has ever known into, into the moment of biggest triumph, of greatest joy, of most satisfying hope. And if that's true, that means even when it hurts, even, even when I don't like it, when it makes me uncomfortable, even if I have everything taken from me, even if I die in Babylon, we can trust because here's, here's what Daniel saw towards the end of his life. It's, it's later on, and we'll get there eventually. But Daniel, I mean, he just, he was giving these tiny little bit of glimpses. He referred, he f- referred to this guy that he saw in a vision as a, as a son of man. 
the ancient of days, which, which looking back, man, it sounds a lot like Jesus. And here's what Daniel wrote 600 years before Christ. He says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And like Daniel 2,600 years ago, we were never meant to have control. But like Daniel, we can trust the one who never loses it. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, God, this is going to be hard. God, I I pray that you would do a work in me and all of us. Um, God, I know in my own life, in my own soul, how I fight for control, both in the the small things and the big things, God, and certainly as as I look at our world. God, I pray that you would convict us. God, would you challenge us, God, and even even discipline us if necessary, that we together would see um, that our hope is not in the immediate and that our citizenship is not ultimately here. God, and I pray that as a result, God, that we, your people, would be a place of hope for those who are growing disillusioned, that as, as things get more and more difficult, God, I pray that um, this would be a place of, of light and joy because we have a king, an emperor, a kingdom that knows no end and that you invite us in it, into it through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have died for us, for all of our, all of our shame and all of our guilt, for the ways in which we do the exact same things, maybe in different ways, as Hezekiah, as Manasseh, as Adam and Eve. Forgive us and give us hope that outlasts us. Be glorified, we pray.